Welcome back to Second Look. Today you'll hear the first of a three installment series hosted at Second during the summer of 2021. In this episode, Brent Stenberg, Executive Director of the Christian Psychological Center, gives guidance on restoring relationships and keeping them healthy. Well, the topic that I have, we should probably roll through that in about 20 minutes, I suppose, and so we'll get out of here early. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a broad topic in terms of relationships, and, and we have about 40 minutes or so to talk about that. And the direction I want to go is I want to talk about three things. I'd talk, like to talk a little bit about our relationship with God and understanding in the midst of everything His love for us and His desire for us in terms of living lives that are filled with meaning and purpose, which is different for each of us in terms of how we live that life out. You think about it for a second, you know, we have the term flower, but there's just a zillion different types of flowers, or we have the various terms to describe a category of something. So you have a category of human beings, but each one of us is designed differently, we're designed uniquely, we're knit together in our mother's womb. Each of us has different skills and gifts and abilities, different temperament, different ways in which we interact with the world, different ways in which we're living our lives. And so that uniqueness is part of our own personal relationship with God, and it's meant to be lived out in community. And as Paul talks about in many different spots, others talk about also in the, in the New Testament, this idea of gifting, of being able to use those gifts all in unity to be able for the, the, the body to grow and for God's will to be done here on earth through us. The second thing that I'd like to talk about is what are some things that get in the way of us being in relationship the way that God intended? And then the third thing I'd like to talk about is what's our role when it comes to entering into relationships, especially some that may be difficult. And I want to talk some in that regard about what's happened culturally, what's happened politically, and maybe some thoughts about how we can kind of address not just those issues, but, but when we have in a relationship with someone that's difficult, what's our part? What can we learn? What can God teach us in the midst of that? So it's been quite a year. It's been quite a several years for many of us in terms of what's happened in our culture, in terms of what's happened in our lives, certainly what's happened in the midst of the pandemic. And so at this point, even though we're here without masks and even though life is opening up again, there's still residual exhaustion that's there for us. And there's things that have happened for us, to us, around us that have made us weary. And so it's interesting because what the, 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 the literature would show is that prior, pre-pandemic, in terms of like, for example, anxiety and depression, the average in terms of number of people that experienced that at any one time was for depression about one in 12 and for anxiety about one in 15. And right now, in the midst of the pandemic and post-pandemic, that number for depression is one in three and for uh, one in four and for anxiety one in three. And so it's not so much necessarily that's a mental health depression or mental health anxiety, but it's an exhaustion, it's a weariness that comes. And for many of us, when we look back on what our experiences have been, you may have had loved ones that you could not spend time with or loved ones who were sick or loved ones who have passed away. For some, it may have been very difficult in terms of employment, it may have been very difficult in terms of finances. There's a thousand different ways in which all of us have been affected. What we know about stress, and what we know about stress in terms of um, 
of that weariness is that there's a part of our brain that's always scanning for danger. And that part of our brain is given to us by God in order to create safety and security. And what we broker on in the midst of that is that we want things to be certain. We want to know why things are happening and what those things mean. And so a question has been how familiar or unfamiliar is the situation we've been in. And for many of us, it's been very unfamiliar. And so that creates that angst because we've not been able to say, here's the finish line, here's what's happening, here's what we need to do. Or there's also the question about control. How much control do I have over what's happening? And then the other thing, of course, is do I have the capacity to deal with what's going on? So in many ways, in the midst of what's called cumulative stress, there's a weariness. The second thing in the midst of all that's happened over this last while is there's a certain amount of worriedness. That's such a word. We get weary and we get worried. What will the future hold? Will I be able to recover economically? What about the fact that I wasn't able to spend the time with some people that were really important to me? How do I decide what it is that, that, that life looks like now for me? And it's interesting because for some folks during the pandemic, there's an opportunity for sifting and sorting of values and say, this is the kind of person I wanna be. And when things open up, this is the direction I wanna move in. And yet things begin to open up and here's all our possibilities and here's all the business and here's everything that's going on. And we wonder, well, what's school gonna be like for the kids? Okay, so what's gonna happen with this? What's gonna happen with that? And there's still that uncertainty that creates worry. But then the third thing that's happened during this time, whether on our political landscape, whether on our cultural landscape, whether in the midst of the pandemic, is that there's a wariness that's come, an awareness about who do you trust? What is really true? What is really going on? What does this mean for our nation? What does this mean for our world? What does it mean for our faith? How do we live out our faith in the midst of this? And what we'll talk about a little bit later is that in some ways what has happened is things have moved from, as social scientists have looked at this and political scientists have looked at it over the last uh, several elections, last uh, generations, is that we've moved from a culture that is focused on what is called um, issue polarization, meaning that we have different ideas about things and we may see them differently and we believe this is what's gonna lead us in the right direction. But we've moved from what is called issue polarization to what's called affective polarization. So it's not just about differences in ideas, it's difference in who you are as a person. And so it's moved to moving from differences in ideas to trust and mistrust of other people who are not part of our tribe, who don't see things the way in which we see them. And there's a sense in which we wanna look at that because again, there's great opportunity for us as Christians to be salt and light in the midst of that and to be loving and to be caring in the way that God intends for us. And it's so tempting for us, and we have to be so careful to not slip down that slippery slope of engaging in a way that does not let us be salt and light. Now the thing is, is that some of us have a hard time being joyful in the morning. So this is really not necessarily about kind of starting the day. My wife, Claudia, is a morning person, and it's like, uh, my, my, my best would be going to bed at two and getting up at 10 probably. And then we had kids and you know, that changed everything. But also for those of us who are prone to anxiety or prone to depression, which happens to be true for myself, often that early morning waking is the most difficult time of the day because there's all these thoughts that come in about this and about that and the other. And then as the day gets going, things start to change. So what we're talking about here is that recognition that each day is a gift. My mom used to tell us each day when we'd leave for school, she'd say, 
This is the day that the Lord's made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So some days are more rejoicing than others, but the fact is life is a gift and we are creatures, we're not the creator. And so then the second passage I'd like to read is in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And this is a passage where Paul had uh, never met the, the Christians there at, at Colossae, but he is writing to them because he's heard about their faith. <clears throat> and he's writing them to say, I pray for you all the time, and <clears throat> what I want is you to know God, and I want you to please him in every way. Do you ever think about that for yourself, that question about what pleases God? And there was a, uh, a, uh, a, a fellow who did some work on what he called the difference between theology and neology. And theology is our beliefs about God, our way of understanding how faith works, understanding who God is, understanding the redemption of Christ, understanding the way the church works, the, that sense of the theological underpinnings to our beliefs. But he also said we each have what he called a neology, which is how we feel about God and how we feel God feels about us when we're on our knees praying. And I remember a few years ago, the opportunity to lead a workshop and ask people ahead of time, as a retreat, and ask people ahead of time to write, answered a variety of questions. And one of the questions was, how do you feel God feels about you? And these were all believers. They got all the questions right in, in terms of a theological understanding. There's a maturity. But of the 30 people who were there, 27 of the 30 had something in that question about how they felt God felt about them, of saying, I just think he's getting weary with me. Because here's that same pattern, and it just doesn't change. Or here's the way that I get close to him, and then I totally forget about God and faith. Or I look, and I'm doing the same things over and over again. And, he, and so the thought was, somehow, I think he's weary with me. Somehow, I think that somehow, I must not be pleasing to him. So in this passage, Paul says that he's praying for them, and he says this. He says that, um, so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then there's a colon. And Paul then says four things about what pleases God. And he says that God is pleased when we bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. And the knowledge that's being talked about here is the relational knowledge. And this increasing in terms of connection to him and doing good work comes out of that sense of connection to him and what he's done for us in our lives. He then says that another thing that pleases God is he says that it's um, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so a lot of times I know for myself when I'm impatient, when I don't feel very joyful, when I feel weighed down by circumstances, it's so tempting to think I'm not living my faith well. But God's kind of got a grin on his face here where he says, look, I get it about patience and I get it about perseverance and I get it on your own, that's really difficult. So I'm just pleased when you rely on me in the midst of it, when you bring it to me as opposed to trying to figure it out by yourself. So God's pleased when we know him. God's pleased when we connect with him. God's pleased when we rely on his strength in the midst of circumstances that we're not certain how those will turn out. And then finally he says, God is pleased when we give thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul says here that what pleases God is when we recognize that we're in, that we're not trying by our works to make it to heaven. We're qualified, we're in, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our future is secure. And Christ also says, look, you've been rescued. You don't understand it all, but you've been rescued and brought into the kingdom of light, the son, the kingdom of my son. And the promise that in the midst of our living pretty messy lives, we've been forgiven and we have redemption. So not only are we creatures, but we're also creatures who God loves and we're creatures that God has made provision for us. And so the other passage that I wanted to mention is the passage in Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about us, despite our best effort, we simply can't end up being able to live the lives that we wish we could. And he ends that part of the section by saying, look, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not the result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we not only have been rescued and redeemed, but there's a purpose that God has for us. And he wants for us to rely on his strength and glorious might and to live out our faith within the context of doing good. And doing good in what way? Because in John 15, think about this for a second. If you knew that life is pretty close to over for you, here on earth, and there are people you're deeply connected to, what message would you want to send to them? What would you want them to know? And Christ, as he prepared for his crucifixion, knew what was going to happen. And so John 14, 15, 16, 17, in in those chapters, he's sharing with them what he wants them to know. And what he shares in John 15 is about abiding in, in Christ, the vine and the branches. But then he talks about where he says, look, He says, anything that you need or want, ask the Father, he'll give it to you because you are my friends, not my servants. And everything that God gave to me, I've given to you. And then he says, a new command I give to you, love one another. And how he defines love is he says, that is the fruit that will last. And that's what we're after if you think about it. I mean, our days are very short here. And for all of us in terms of meaning and purpose, we want happiness but we also wanna believe that we've made a difference, that there's significance in some way. Now we live in a culture that really defines success in pretty crazy ways, and there is a whole literature on happiness and on, on a meaning and purpose that is very countercultural to the way we think about the way in which our culture defines it. And so Paul in Romans 12 says, look, don't let the world press you into its mold. You know? and, and so Christianity, our faith, it's countercultural. And it's countercultural in the sense of forgiving and loving and connecting and trusting and working out our salvation in a way of not feeling like it's kind of all up to us or feeling like we're not creatures, but we've got we've to make it happen for ourselves. At worst, we can end up feeling like we've disappointed God. At best, we can, and also at worst, we can end up on the other side thinking, it's kind of like I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, and, and, and our pride can get in the way. There was an article that was written 
and we can maybe post these actually, some of these articles, because they may be helpful, uh, by a guy named Paul Sands, who is an associate professor of theology at, um, at uh, Baylor University. And he wrote this little article called The Deadly Sin of Pride. And what he talks about in it is he says, look, we are created for a relationship and God's spirit is in all of humanity in terms of we were all created with dignity. We were all created with certain rights in terms of what it means to be human. And he said that what can happen is that this fight between us and God can show up in our pride where we wanna be the creator, not necessarily the created. And so as a result, when it comes to relationships, we can end up sometimes with our pride getting in the way of being able to be the kind of people that can truly be there for others. And we've all got it to some extent. And I just wanna read a couple things from his article because he says, look, there's these three different kinds of pride. He said, he said, one variety is vanity. And what vanity is, is that it would be that I don't really care whether I like this, this uh, blazer. What I care about is whether you like this blazer. Because, or I don't really, it's important to me what you think about me. And so vanity is that desire to be noticed, is that desire to be seen, is the desire to be spoken well of. And as uh, the writer says, he says, vanity is preoccupied with appearances. The vain person does not so much seek to be admirable as to be admired. He or she derives self-esteem from the turned head, public honors, and tokens of success. As this one writer notes, the vain offer their appearance as a means of seducing others into thinking well of them, which in turn is a means of seducing themselves to think well of themselves. And so when we get caught in vanity, then it's very difficult to just be present to the other person. It's very difficult to really want to get to know him or her. And in our own heart, we're kind of competing or judging, you know, am I above or am I below? How does this fit? And so we may end up saying this to flatter them because they'll like us better, or we may say that in order to kind of worry about how did I come across, what was it like? Now again, all of us worry about our reputation. All of us worry about what people think. But in this case, in many ways, it's like vanity is, my identity is based on how you see me. And so that distorts relationship because I'm not being authentic. I'm not engaging. I'm just trying to get by in terms of being okay with myself, even though I struggle with that. The second kind of pride that he talks about is conceit. And conceit is a little different in the sense that it also needs an audience, but it competes in a way that basically says, I'm above others. And so my ideas are the best ideas. I want you to see it the way that I see it. And there's really kind of a fixed mindset, kind of a closed way of looking at the world. And like he says, conceit is an exaggerated opinion of one's virtues and accomplishments. It seeks not so much excellence as superiority, and therefore it's inherently and intensely competitive and adversarial. Conceit depends on transmuting real or imagined virtues into a general feeling of personal superiority. Thus, a conceited physician who cannot hit a baseball, play a violin, or manage a small business will think himself superior to others, to those who can, because obviously those things don't matter really one way or another. And so there's a sense in which in conceit it's like, yeah, I want you to know my stuff, but I'm not all that interested in yours. I want you to kind of admire me and kind of see that the way I think about these things, the way I live my life, that's how you should be living. And so as a result, you can see that that fixed mindset, that closedness, 
means that entering into a dialogue with somebody who may be different or being able to encourage somebody who has skills or gifts that we don't have, we have a very hard time in doing that because again, it starts and ends with me. And then the third that he talks about is conceit, is arrogance, which he says really doesn't really need an audience because people who are more towards arrogant, they kinda, they're kind of the smartest person in the room. And in some ways, what, what you see with arrogant people is they really don't care that much about the impact that their behavior has on others. And um, in leadership, they end up being able to say, this is where we're going, this is how it is. And at the end of the day, it's really about where they want to go and how they want to lead, as opposed to what it means to be in community. Also, those who are arrogant, honestly, sometimes end up to use an Old Testament Proverbs and Psalms term, come across as scoffers. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, okay? As opposed to being able to say, let's talk about that. Now, it still may be the most ridiculous thing that person's ever heard, <laughs> but there's a sense in which there's an opportunity for that dialogue, for the connection. So you can see, as we define pride in these ways, that what pride is, is it's anti-God, meaning it starts and ends with me, and it's also anti-community. It, 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 it doesn't leave room to really connect. And yet again, what we know from who we are in Christ is that we are loved, we are forgiven, we are, have works that we're to do in terms of bringing about the shalom, bringing about the peace. The Old Testament term shalom meant not just peace, it meant everything in its right place. And God's hatred of sin is because things have happened that have damaged everything in its right place. And for us as Christians, the opportunity and the obligation that we have is in the sphere where God has each of us operating, is to do our part to bring about peace, to bring about things the way they're supposed to be. And our pride can get in the way. In mountaineering, there are these things called knife ridges, which in going across that, it may be two feet wide, it may be eight feet wide, it may be whatever, but it drops left and it drops right. And if you're not roped up, it's just really kind of scary to try and walk across those. And so for us in trying to walk with humility, this life that God has for us, that knife ridge, we can fall off on that side of pride, but we can also fall on the side of shame, this, the, the, the humiliation side, where we feel I don't have much to offer. Or we end up thinking because of what happened in my life, I don't have anything to give to God. And yet again, when you take a look at the Gospels, when you read the good news, you see Christ's heart of connection to those who are broken. And you see not only that in coming to faith, God not only redeems us, but our experiences are part of our life story. And that life story is what God uses for us to minister and to connect to others. So we gotta be careful of pride but we also have to be careful of self-condemnation. And we've got to walk that path of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who loves us, who died for us, who says, you're my hands and feet. Bring the shalom, bring the peace in your areas where that's necessary. So then the question is, how in the world do we do that, right? And so the answer to that question is different for each one of us. I mean, it just is different for each one of us. And so in some ways, there is that notion of being able to really pay attention to Philippians 2, 
where Paul says, and, and I want to read the verse first, and then I want to talk about it for a second, where Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So he says, look, work out your salvation. Pay attention to what does it mean to live out this life of faith, because God is at work in you. Now, this has been misrepresented at times, and people say, well, yeah, okay, me and God, this is what it's like, and yeah, well, that's good for what you believe, and this is what I believe. But where Paul is coming from, if we start at the beginning of chapter two, is he says, look, unity comes through humility. And he talks about how Christ, who had everything when it came to being God, set that aside in order to enter this world as a human being. And in setting that aside, he was willing to set aside his rights in order to be there for others. Now, Christ was not codependent. Christ was not mealy-mouthed. Christ was not, um, oh, whatever. But Christ was filled, as it says in John 1, Christ was filled with grace and truth. And you see him engage people where they were. He engaged people in their hearts. And so God engages us in our heart, and he is working in us, and we need to know who he is, and we need to know the theological side of what it means to live out our faith. But by the same token, we also need to recognize that the path that I'm called to walk may be different than a path that you're called to walk in terms of how that looks, how it gets lived out. And that is really, really crucial to remember. Because at, when Christ returned and he's talking to Peter, remember before he, he ascended, and, and he says to Peter, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And he kept, and he kept going like, yeah, 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 I do. He says, well, feed my sheep. And then Peter looks over at John, he says, well, what about him? And, 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 and Christ says to him, he says, that's really none of your business. You follow me. And that's really crucial. And you see also in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have, the 11, you have the crowd, you have the 11. Christ takes his three best friends, he prays alone. And all of us need to live life in community, but all of us have a path when it comes to relational connectedness, when it comes to what it means to bring the shalom. We all have a path that we walk alone, but that's walked within community as well. Christ came, he took his three best friends and he didn't bring them to teach spiritual lessons, which he'd done other times. He brought them because he needed their support. And that's important, we need the support. We need to take a look at what that means. So with that in mind though, as I said at the beginning, there really is this thing that's happened in our culture and it's happened in many of our hearts. It's happened in our church at times. It's happened within Christian community. And that is that we're living in times that are very unsettling in many ways. And it's interesting because again, part of that unsettledness is because of what we've been through with the pandemic. There's no question about that. We've been living with uncertainty, and in the midst of the uncertainty, that's why on social media and all these conspiracy theories, which those who believe them, they're not conspiracy theories at all, it's, it's the truth. And so all these things emerge because it's like, I just want certainty. I just want to know what's happening. I want to explain it in this way. In this way. So the work of Richard Beck, he is um, a, 
professor of psychology at uh, Abilene Christian University. He's done a lot of work in the area of Christianity and culture. And so in reflecting on what's been going on, there's a couple things that he's brought to the fore that I'd like to share with you. And then also the work of uh, uh, another fellow at Fuller, who's the chair of the Integration of Psychology and Theology uh, 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 division there. And so this, this is what, this is what uh, Beck says. He says that what's happened is that in many ways, in terms of gaining a certainty, we've moved, like I said earlier, from issue differences, discussing issues, to affective polarization, meaning are you in or out? Do you see it the way I do or do you not? And he says, look, he says, politics is increasingly becoming a marker of group identity in America. Therefore, affective polarization is simply the manifestation of what we know happens when we have uncertainty and when we're trying to figure out our own meaning and purpose. He says, specifically, group identity is often achieved through two related mental and emotional biases, in-group favoritism and out-group denigration. We see the biases at work everywhere in our life, from positive feelings we have towards people who are in our tribe to the suspicions we harbor about those people. And it's true, it's not just about politics, it's just about, okay, what do we really believe here? Who are those people? And we've gotten caught in that in many ways, some of us have anyway. But it's not just the humans that are wary of difference. It goes deeper than that. Group identity is in a large part how we achieve a sense of self-esteem and significance. Make a list of what gives you meaning and purpose and belonging, and much of that list will involve group membership. You're an American, a Christian, a Fuller alumni. You belong to a church, a family, a place of work. We're members of groups and organizations that represent our deepest values and concerns. Declaring these allegiances with a Facebook group, a bumper sticker, we gather up all these groups and you have an identity, a location where you stand in the world. And when we stand in the world on faith in terms of working out our salvation, when we stand in a way that says, okay, let me hold my beliefs, but let me hold them lightly. Now by lightly, I don't mean let me hold my faith lightly. I mean the fact is, is that all of us, in terms of how we understand the world, there's some things that we get that are right, and there's other things that may be part of our tradition, might be part of our fears, might be part of our life experiences, that we end up looking at those in ways that may be different than what it is that God intends. When I was, um, I don't know, probably eight or nine, my mother thought it was a great idea to take some piano lessons, which was really different than when, whether I thought that was a good idea or not. And so those lasted probably about six months. And my piano teacher was a, a, a fellow in downtown Minneapolis named Eddie, uh, and he was a concert pianist. And you know those practice books you get where they write what you're supposed to do for the next time you meet? Well, he'd written out the things I was supposed to do, and there's one of those that just seemed too hard to me and I just didn't like it. So I took an eraser, and he'd written it in pen dog on it, and so I tried to erase that one, and I kept erasing and erasing and erasing until there was a hole in the paper. So what you saw was do this, 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 there's a hole, do this and this. And he never mentioned it, but it wasn't long after that that pretty much the piano lesson ceased. And sometimes that's what we're tempted to do in our lives to look at things and go like, yeah, I, I, I see what God's saying there, but I'm really not interested in that. Or like, yeah, no, I get it, but that is too hard. Or like, yeah, that's fine, but what about this, that, or the other? And so there's a temptation sometimes to not with our heart wide open and our hands wide open, 
to say, Lord, what do you have for me? So, the other person that I'd like to read a, a couple things from is, is this Brad Strong, who, as I said, he's the professor of integration uh, and a endowed chair at Fuller and the Psych School, as well as the head of the Division of Integration of Psychology and Theology. And so his career, his, his vocational life, is in reflecting on this notion about how do these all fit together. And so here's what he said. He said, what happens when we end up in a dialogue with somebody who has a different perspective than us, and we get caught in that affective polarization, okay, is that what we lose is any amount of empathy for the other person. And we close ourselves to really a dialogue to listen, to hear, because what we, all we want is to be heard. And the reason for that, according as these guys look at it, is that sometimes because we feel that anxiousness because our self-esteem gets built on looking at it through this grid. Have you noticed, I mean, even sometimes in our Sunday school classes, in our churches, sometimes even in our friendships with other people, we end up getting caught with a lot of if-then statements. If you see it this way, then you've got it right. And sometimes we've even gone to the place of saying, if you see it that way, I don't see how you can be a follower of Christ. And so we can get caught in deciding about each other. And now guess what we're playing? The Holy Spirit's role. And so when we get caught in affective polarization, we are just trying to make it work the way we see it. And you know what? Maybe we see it is exactly the way it needs to be, but it's not our job to convince the other person. It's our job to enter into dialogue, but it's also our job to have a heart open to hearing whether or not there's something we need to learn as well. So here's what he said, Brad Strom. He said, the reason we can't even understand why the other feels what they do is because, excuse me, the reason we can't understand why the other feels what they do is because we've lost our empathy for that person due to our focus on on defending our worldview and our self-esteem. If we can hold on to our self-esteem and worldview without becoming defensive, we can move back into a position of empathy. We can ask and explore with the other why they feel what they do, moving towards some understanding. Having empathy for another is not to agree with them, but it's simply to understand. Now, this is interesting. Also note, I'm not saying, I'm saying why they feel the way they do, not why they believe what they do. Now, for some of you, you'd say, yeah, there's a psychology, you know, what's my feelings? But here's what he means by that, and I think this is really important. He says, this is because it's the feeling underneath the belief that is most important at times. Someone may believe something primarily because of fear. They may believe something because of life experiences. They may cling to a policy that you find abhorrent, not because they're actually a terrible person, but because they're anxious and afraid of something. Think how frequently politicians prey on our fears. Our fears are then turned into partisan beliefs that protect us from anxiety. And anyone who doesn't feel the same way, we label as an idiot. And so the thing is, is that for all of us, when we lock into our perspective, we not only lose the opportunity to really hear and be salt and light, literally in the way that Christ designed us to be, to be curious, to be present, but it also prevents us from deciding or looking at, is there a word in here from the Holy Spirit for me in terms of what I believe that I might be holding on to tightly? Henry Nouwen tells this story about what he called the monkey trap, that in this third world country, in order to catch monkeys for food, they would place stakes around in a circle and put corn in the middle. And a monkey would slide its hand in and grab corn, 
but could not get its hand back out with the fist because the stakes were too close together. And for many monkeys, they could easily get their dinner because of the fact that the monkey would refuse to release the corn, even if that would save its life. And so in some ways, affective polarization is I'm going to hang on, and that's the way that it is. So, imagine this common example. Two family members are talking politics and their beliefs start to collide. They both begin to feel defensive. Their self-esteem is being weakened, so they engage in worldview defense, subsequently attacking and othering one another. Their conversation degenerates to attacking one the other's moral character, even to the point of questioning whether one's Christianity is really true. Sound familiar? But what if one of the participants could say to himself or herself, wait, I'm feeling angry and defensive and I'm automatically counterattacking and belittling my family member. I've lost empathy for them and consequently can't even understand how or why they might believe what they believe. But I don't have to defend myself to this person. I'm not what or who they say I am. I don't have to agree with them to return to empathy, which doesn't mean agreeing with their position, but allows me to understand what they feel, even if I have a hard time understanding what they believe. And what if instead of countering our family member's argument, we ask them, why is that important to you? Or you seem to feel that strongly, or you seem to feel afraid or anxious, passionate, upset about this. Help me understand. Isn't it possible that the outcome of the conversation might be different? And it's true. So we're not talking here about truth. We're talking about the way in which we're relating each other to get to truth. And one of the things that we know in terms of neuroscience is that the way that our brain is wired is that there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, that that part of the brain contains anything that has been threatening, painful, difficult, anxiety arousing, whatever it is for us. And if we are caught in uncertainty, if we're caught in that effective polarization, when we hear something that goes against how we see it, we double down. There's an, literally a physiological reaction. And when that reaction happens, we get tunnel vision. We cannot see beyond our perspective. And so when you find yourself in a conversation that's happening, look to breathe, look to settle, look to have a heart open to hearing what's being said. Now, so what do we do with all that? What do we do with all that? He finishes by saying this, I'm not naive, I know that it's easier said than done. This kind of self-differentiation requires practice and patience, as well as community support from others who are trying to find a different way without mudslinging and othering. It almost sounds like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Now listen to this, in reality, these people are not our enemies. As Mason said above, they may be our opponents, but it doesn't mean they're our enemies or that they cease being our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, that's crucial because when we cancel them, when we other them, when we push away, we're just saying, no, I'm not interested in what you have to say and we lose the opportunity to learn and grow. So what do we do? I think there's three or four things I wanna mention. One is we can get caught in these if-then statements because we do believe what we do. But it's important to us to take a look at why in certain conversations, or why when I hear certain things, do I react as strongly as I do inside? There's something huge about curiosity, which is a willingness to say, I don't feel that way all the time, but I do right now what is going on. And there is not a shortcut to really learning about ourselves except taking time for self-reflection within the context of our Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit which is within us. 
23rd Psalm is a good model for that. It talks about that God leads us, God walks with us in the midst of our life, God is behind us bringing us home. And if you go back and pray that through and have Christ with you and pray that Psalm, and then go back to where it says, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. The question right there is, where does my soul need restoration? What is going on with me here? I feel discouraged, I feel frustrated, I feel angry, I feel this, I feel that. And so it's bringing it to God and it's bringing it to Christ and saying, let's talk. Help me see what I need to see. But the second part of that is that God has given us community. And those are people that can walk with us. And a challenge for all of us is that when we hang mostly with people who see things like we do, nothing wrong with that. That's kind of where our friendships lie. That's where our kind of world revolves. But the conversations do we have are the conversations about continuing to feather our position and show how ridiculous the other side is. Or are we willing sometimes to say, you know, that term really bothers me, but what's scripture got to say about that? I can't agree, in other words, I can't agree with what's being said here, but if I can't agree with that, what do I believe? And a lot of times we don't go further than, I don't agree with that, or that's ridiculous. And we don't double down on looking at what do I believe within the context of how God is at work in my life. Now, let me give you an example of, of just that notion of being able to have scripture change our mind. In George's series on um, Revelation, in Revelation 3, there's that church of Laodicea. And it says there that God hates them, it hates that they're lukewarm. They're not hot or cold, he's gonna spit them out of their mouth. How I've heard that sermon forever is like, if you're a lukewarm Christian, you know, it's better to be hot or cold because God's just gonna spit you out of your mouth. And I've carried all this guilt about, am I strong enough, am I hot enough, am, am I lukewarm enough, what's going on? And George talked about, he says, you know where that comes from? Laodicea was a town that didn't have drinking water and their water came from like this aqueduct six miles away, and when it got there, it had this, this mineral in it that they really couldn't drink, because if they drank it with that mineral in it, they'd throw up. And so their drinking water was not good, and it'd have to settle down, and it was lukewarm, and it just they weren't very well known for their drinking water. But the two towns that were around in that valley, too, one had these hot springs, and those hot springs, people could go, and they could revive themselves in it. And the other town had cool, good mountain drinking water. And so what God is saying is, say, look, be hot and cold. Be, 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 be of water. Be, be fresh water. Be that for people who are thirsty. And, and do good. Be that warm spring. But don't be lukewarm. And that changed everything for me. Because it changes from me feeling like have I pleased God enough to recognizing that passage in Colossians that said, I'm in my future secure, and I want to do good work, and I'm not gonna always do good work, but I wanna work my salvation out with fear and trembling. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that when it comes to relationships with others, we have to look as C.S. Lewis said. He said, we're like a mirror, we reflect God's goodness, we reflect his glory, and is our, are we polishing our mirror? Are we good at reflecting light? Are we willing to really hear others not that we agree with them, but in order to understand and to form a dialogue, to be able to understand differences. Are we with those who are our friends, spending our time talking about why we're the bigger Barnes people, we kind of know what's going on, 
as opposed to saying, okay, if we don't agree with that, what do, how do we see it? As a church, we're trying some stuff. Some is working, some's not working. That's okay. Let's not critique what we're doing. Let's ask for each of us, what's my part in it? How do I bring salt and light? How do I bring, bring who Christ called me to be? The final word that I want to give is if you look at Romans 12, it talks about being a living sacrifice. And then it says, do not be, uh, think too highly of yourself, but have sober judgment. You know why? Because what follows is, it talks about how we're all incredibly loved and we're incredibly gifted. And then it says, use those gifts in community and here's how you do it. But the end of the chapter is very interesting because he says, so much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's not declared there, it's not be at peace with all men. So much as depends on you. So in conflict, or something's not right, I have to look at my own heart, am I doing my part? A mistake that I make, a mistake that many of us make, is to think my goal is reconciliation with someone. And I would say to people, and I say to myself, that's not a good goal. It's like, what? It's a wonderful hope, it's a desire, it's what we hope for. But my goal is to be the person who is open to reconciliation. My goal is to be the person who provides a willingness to be humble, a willingness to say this is my part. And sometimes the other person will reach back to us and sometimes they will not. And Christ said to, to his disciples, hey look, when you go into a city, preach the good news, they don't accept it, shake your dust off your sandals, move on. And I don't mean we move on from people, but it's not up to us to carry the other person's responsibility. It's up to them. And hopefully the Spirit works in their life. So these are difficult times. They're exhausting times. And yet we are loved. And we are His. And we are incredibly imperfect, and we incredibly mess everything up. And He does His good work through us. And what is the good work? Our desire is to bring the shalom. Our desire is to do our part to make things right as they were intended. And that is going to mean something different to you than it's going to mean to me, than it is going to mean to a friend. What's similar is we're committed to that. And how it lives out is within a context of diversity where each one of us has our own calling. Let me close in prayer. Father, this life and this kingdom life is one that when we try and live it on our own effort just is so difficult. And Father, help us on a daily basis to see very clearly that you love us, that we are forgiven, that you have given us your spirit who is within us. We can talk to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Our lives are transformed. Help us, Father, to pay attention. And help us to pay attention, not just in difficult situations, but each day to be present to the gift that is our life and to be able to enjoy best we can living that out within the context of community. These things, Father, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.